Hi, I'm Anna Staver, and this is a special episode of Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the details on what went down in Larry Householder's public corruption trial. I'm joined this week, as always, by reporters Jesse Ballmer and Laura Bischoff, who are down in Cincinnati in that federal courtroom day in and day out. The big week, the moment we've all been waiting for, Larry Householder took the stand and he was on for about two days. He told his story and then he got cross-examined and I just like, I think everybody's been dying to know, what did he say? Yeah, so this was really a fascinating point of the trial, honestly, probably the the pinnacle of a six-week trial where Householder is accused of trading legislation for the campaign contributions from Akron Base First Energy and its kind of allies. And so Larry took the stand and really turned on his folksy Appalachian charm. He was talking about um, just why he got into politics and said that he returned in 2016 because he was concerned about divisiveness in the Ohio legislature, both between parties and within his own party. And then we heard from Assistant U.S. Attorney Emily Gladfelder, who did the cross-examination and started to dismantle some of those points that uh, Larry made in the previous day. Yeah, I wanted to ask, there was a line in your story where First Energy apparently paid for a hotel room that Larry had for the inauguration of President Donald Trump in D.C. And Larry says on the stand that he thought the Ohio Republican Party paid for it. And you had this quote where she said, "Did you basically, did you really not know who paid for the, your hotel room? And I just want to know, what was her tone? Was it sort of like, incredulous or like I just like I feel like she had to be looking at him like are you serious Clark she is a very skilled prosecutor um she got the conviction on the Chinese spy case and also PG Sittenfeld former Cincinnati City Council member it seemed like she had all 900 evidence exhibits memorized throughout the trial she didn't bobble the ball very often and this was really kind of her moment to showcase her skills. Um, The cross-examination went on for a couple of hours and she used a very conversational tone and she was just, you know, very quickly going one by one, you know, kind of eliminating or dismantling a lot of Larry Householder's claims. Yeah. Also, he had a very different version of how that visit to D.C. went. He talked about getting pizza and seeing a concert where the prosecution focused on his dinners with first energy lobbyists and executives. Right. So was he just trying to make the case like I did a bunch of stuff while I was there? Like that wasn't the focus of the trip. Was that kind of his angle? Well, I would say that Larry Householder flat out said that he never went to dinner with First Energy executives while he was in Washington, D.C. after taking their private jet to the inaugural events of now former President Donald Trump. Uh, He said that he did not go to steakhouses, and that was after his political advisor, Jeff Longstreth, had said on the stand that he did, that he met with First Energy executives such as Chuck Jones and their top lobbyist at the time, Michael Dowling. And so really, this was in direct contrast. The way the federal government tried to get at that is they had a photo of what looked like Larry Householder's knee, along with Householder's son, Mike Dowling, in a limo, that limo, the geolocation of that photo was right next to the Charlie Palmer Steakhouse on the same night that the itinerary said that the householder met with First Energy there. So we'll see what the jury believes, but he basically was saying the direct opposite of what Jeff Longstreth testified to. 
Yeah. And speaking of that, there was this $500,000 loan, correct, that went to or gift, depending on how we define it, that went to make uh, in part make repairs on a home that Householder had in Florida. Now, on the stand, he says, I totally intended to pay that back, but I hadn't yet because after Longstreth pled guilty, I thought that could get weird, right? That was kind of what he said about why he didn't pay it back. Yeah, so Jeff Longstreth worked with Larry Householder starting in late 2016 through um, their arrests in July of 2020. And then Longstreth decided to sign a guilty plea in October of 2020 and testify against Householder. And key to this was Longstreth um, supposedly loaned Householder almost $500,000 to cover his legal bills, um, a, a lawsuit settlement that Householder had to pay, wipe out some credit card debt, and then make repairs to his home in Florida that his, his householder's mom used to live in. It had had been damaged by a hurricane, and um, and you can't, you know, he wanted to he wanted to fix it up and sell it, and then supposedly pay Jeff Longstreth back with the proceeds from the Florida home. And Longstreth was like, no, that that never happened. It, he didn't sign an agreement. He never paid a cent. He never even said thank you. And instead, when Longstreth tried to say like, hey, we have to work this out. Pay me back for the legal bills and the and the Florida home repairs. Householder was like, hey, can you wipe out my credit card debt for me? Yeah. So I wanted to touch quickly on the guy who didn't testify. The other defendant in the case, Matt Borges, chose not to take the stand, which is his right. Did you guys get any reason why? Yeah. So I talked to Matt Borges after that day and he said that he didn't feel like he need to needed to based off of what evidence had been presented by federal prosecutors he essentially believes that they didn't make the case against him that he was tied into this whole conspiracy the two witnesses who really tied Borges to this were first energy solutions lobbyist Juan Cespedes and then of course political operative Tyler Furman who said Borges gave him a $15,000 check in exchange for inside intel on the referendum to stop House Bill 6. And so attorneys for um, Matt Borges have really played the I didn't even go here approach uh, for much of this trial and have poked tried to poke some holes in the Furman testimony. So it didn't feel like Borges himself needed to get up on the stand. Also, he had just um, witnessed uh, Larry Householder enduring the cross-examination by Emily Gladfelter. Maybe he just didn't want to sign up for that. That's always a risk when you choose to testify in your own defense, right? Like Larry is a charismatic guy who spent years in politics. He knows how to talk to a crowd. Borges, I mean, he has some similar experience. He was the Ohio Republican Party chair for a while, but it is always risky opening yourself up to direct cross-examination. Like you never know how that's going to go. Honestly, I think that Larry Householder taking the stand um, earlier in the week, he he did seem to make some headway in changing the narrative and the focus to his side of the story, his version of the story. But then the next day, that cross-examination was, uh, it was pretty tough. So next week, we are getting closing arguments, jury instructions. So the case, the case is going to go to the jury, right? By like maybe Wednesday? Yeah, either Tuesday or Wednesday, we're going to hear closing arguments from the government and then attorneys for both Householder and Borges. The government gets one more crack at it before the jurors get to deliberate. And so right now we have 12 members of the jury and two alternates. Hopefully everyone makes it to the end after all of our COVID woes. And then the two alternates will be dismissed and get to ho go home and see how this all turns out. 
Yeah. And for you guys, I'm just curious, practically speaking, do you stay down there or how will notification go? Because obviously the jury could take an hour, a day, a week, right? Like it's, it, they, they get week, to take as much. A week? No. You never know, right? Like, well, basically, I guess my point is the jury gets to take however long they think is necessary to reach a verdict. And there's no real way of knowing how long they're going to take until it happens. So do you guys like, are you guys going to get called back or like... What's going on? Well, I, I mean, we're, we're in it for the long haul. We've been covering this thing since the jury selection day, uh, January 20th. And we've been covering the case, you know, for, since their arrests back in, in July of 2020. So we're not giving up yet. We'll be here in Cincinnati and making sure that uh, our readers uh, know the outcome. Yeah. And I will just say before we all let you go that if we have a verdict in the middle of next week, we're going to put together a special episode to let you know. We won't keep you waiting till till Monday. It may not be the day of because I recognize that Laura and Jesse will be super busy if he's acquitted or convicted. They're going to have a lot of work to do. But as soon as we can, we will try to get you something on the verdict and what went down and what next steps would be. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered today, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like dispatch.com. <laughs>